Hi, I'm Jason Limbeck, and this is Who Lives Like This, where each episode, Elizabeth and I have conversations with our kinds of celebrities, caregivers of kids and young adults with disabilities. Today's guest is Anat Banyal. Her work is at the forefront of the emerging brain plasticity field and the understanding of the role of movement in child development, health, and vitality. Anat is the founder of Anat Banyal Method at NeuroMovement. Over the past 30-plus years, Anat has worked with athletes, musicians, and other high performers, as well as thousands of children diagnosed with cerebral palsy, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, genetic disorders, and more. She developed her method that provides both practice and theory supported by current brain science and is the author of the highly acclaimed book, Kids Beyond Limits, and the best-selling Move Into Life, Neuromovement for Lifelong Vitality. Trained as a clinical psychologist and a dancer, Anat was a student and then close professional associate of Dr. Feldenkrais for many years. She has trained over 700 practitioners that now work with children with special needs, and she continues to train practitioners, lead workshops, and run a private practice with her colleagues at the Anat Banyal Method Center in San Rafael, California. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the plasticity of the brain, the role of movement in child development, and including inspiring stories and tips and tricks for our audience at home. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hey, Jason. You know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, uh, I don't know. We haven't talked in so long here on the show. I know. It's been ages. I don't even know how to fill you in. Um, Sophie's doing pretty well, knock on wood. Uh, I've got the two boys in college. I'm working still as a teacher, although very recently I left one job and I'm committing more full-time to the other, which I'm very excited about. I found it really difficult with two different places. And so I'm, I guess I'm okay. I'm kind of, uh, I don't know. It's just been a longer transition period than I thought with the empty nest or the faux empty nest. So anyway, that's about it. I'm, I haven't been writing. I'm going to try to get going in my creative life again. I, I've sort of been in a self-imposed paralysis, but that's basically it. How about you? How are you and your family? Things are good. We have uh, our own little transition and everybody back to school and all the chaos that brings after the long holiday break. And But everybody's doing well. Noah's, uh, I think we've talked about before, he's in this um, trial for an eye gaze device for him to help communicate and seeing some good early progress there, which is exciting. And Oh, wow. Yeah, we're just uh, plugging along on that. You know, one of our former guests, Geneva Stone, who listeners can scroll back and listen to her podcast with us, her son, Robert, has been using an eye gaze technology for a really long time. And I imagine uh, she would have some helpful tips. Oh, yeah, I got to reach out to her. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Cool. We have a, as we mentioned, we have a, a, a new kind, or not new kind of, but a different kind of guest. Usually we talk to parents, but uh, we've got somebody making an impact the world for many parents, uh, and we want to invite her in on the show. Anat, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this interview. Anat, I want to apologize if I mispronounced your name. I sort of froze up, but will you say it? <laughs> well, for sure. You did a good job. Okay. Anat Baniel. Oh, good. Okay. Thank you. 
So Anat, we'd like to start with um, just hearing what brought you to this world of serving children. And, and I know you serve adults as well, but we'd love to hear kind of the background of, of why you do what you do. Yeah, I'd love uh, to tell you uh, how I, I got to work with children with special needs. I never expected to. I was uh, in grad school, clinical psychology, and I was looking to uh, learn how to include, you know, body movement, uh, sensations, feelings on that level, not just, you know, the verbal level that I was being trained at. And that brought me to Dr. Feldenkrais. And I was really fortunate to, to study with him and then travel with him to, at the later phase of his life. Uh, I was very young and he needed some help. And I was working primarily with dancers and musicians and just, you know, regular adults. That was more my background. And uh, in one of my travels with him, they brought to him a small a baby. She was at the time 13 months old that um, had a diagnosis, global brain damage, which is actually meaningless, de facto, if you really think about it. But what it it is devastating for the parent and what it uh, represents is a child that is not doing anything that she's supposed to do. So she couldn't lie on her belly. Even if you put her on the belly, she couldn't roll over. She couldn't hold her head properly. Her eyes were crossed. She was spastic on the whole left side. She cried almost all the time. And uh, I was there when they brought her to Moshe, that's Dr. Feldenkrais, and the, he asked the parents to go in and talk with him and they put the girl down and she was crying and I just broke my heart. So I picked her up and she stopped crying. Dr. Feldenkrais came out and said, Anat, will you hold her for me while I work on her? Because I don't like to work on a child when they cry because they, their brain is not available to learn. I said, sure. So he worked on her and it was all nice and they went away and they came the next day and she cried again and I picked her up and <laughs> she stopped crying. And he asked me again um, if I'd keep holding her. And then the third day, he asked me ahead of time, would I hold her? And I said, sure. During the session, he was doing something with her head, and she was in my lap. So I could feel what he was trying to have her do, and I could feel that her pelvis and lower back were not responsive to what he was doing with her head. So I started moving, timing myself with him, to what he was doing with her head. By that time, I was a practitioner. So, you know, when that happened. So, and it was just magical. And the girl went through some really dramatic change where her, the father held her, you know, in his arms with her face towards him. And she held her head perfectly. And then she arched her back voluntarily and brought the head back. I mean, she got control of her back and head. And we're talking on session number three. And just that happened in that session. But, you know, this was just one of many things that were happening. And uh, he, he, we continued to where he was uh, teaching a very large uh, practitioner training program. And I was assisting him, you know, in that. And at the same time, it so happened that there was a very, he didn't, Feldenkrais himself didn't work with children very much. Just occasional child that the parent brought to him. He mostly worked with adults, but there was a, a reporter that wrote a long article, took him a year to write, about Feldenkrais's work where he saw him demonstrating on an 11-year-old girl with cerebral palsy. And that article came out just before this uh, training session started. It was a two-month long in Amherst. And children started coming out, of course, with their parents out of the woodwork. 
And I didn't know that he was doing it, but he said to, he had not that much time because he was teaching. He said, I will see your child provided that after the first session you continue seeing or not. So all of a sudden, parents started asking to work with me and I found out what was going on and didn't tell them that I had no idea. (laughs) You know, I, I didn't know what to do, but he was, I mean, Moshe was such a huge, you know, being gentle, but huge. And he knew, so I figured he sent them to me, I'm going to do it. And I started working with kids. And I always say that the the biggest gift in that process was that I had no idea. Right. I just knew what I knew. The parents came in, there was a child in front of me. The child was whatever, however, whichever diagnosis. And I needed to connect and interact with the child and see what happens. You know, one of my biggest principles in my work is uh, shifting the attitude from fixing to connecting, from trying to fix the child to connecting with the child. Because without it, I wouldn't know even what to do with a child. I don't know how to fix people. I don't know how to make a child do something they can't do. I can only go with a child and create conditions for a process to occur that they will figure out how to do it, which is, by the way, how we all learn. I mean, nobody can be made to learn by somebody else knowing it. So anyway, and then, you know, that's continued. And and uh, at the time I lived in Israel and I worked, f- you know, for Moshe in his center and the kids started coming more and I started getting more children and I moved to New York and I started in New York with adults. Again, dancers, musicians, kind of like my milieu. But because of Elizabeth, they lived in Chicago. The father and mother told parents that had children with special needs about me. So kids started coming from Chicago to New York, and I would see them either a week or two weeks straight every day because, you know, they couldn't come just like twice a week. And so my way of working with kids was pretty intense where I'd have them in blocks of anywhere between five to ten sessions, and you know. And the sessions are no longer than 30 minutes, at the most 40, because it works the changes happen really rapidly and the kid is done. When was this, Anat? This was in the uh, mid to late 80s. It's fascinating because my daughter was born in 95 and um, very early in her life, I started to look in what we used to call I guess still is called alternative ways of treating her, which always made me laugh because the alternatives, at least in our experience, became the um, essential treatments and the really the only ones that really helped her. So very early in her life, I was introduced to um, osteopathy. And we were talking before the podcast, Jason, about osteopathy and a very famous woman who's now died, but Viola Freiman, who worked particularly with brain-injured children. So I remember hearing about Anat at some point, and I feel so excited. And it's so interesting to me what you said about fixing and treating or connecting, because that was one of the things I sort of learned from Dr. Freiman was about how every child, no matter how whatever we call brain injured, they have an inherent dignity, but also potential that needs to be almost unfolded or released from within them. And um, we found that very much to be true in my own daughter and the changes that happened to her just purely from a connection. But it's so hard to explain what that is. So I would love it if you could maybe explain a little bit of that to our listeners? What does it mean to connect 
and the way that you're talking about? This is a challenge. I'll just put an aside. We're now doing a project, a year-long project in a school district in Canada where they we're bringing our work to the classroom. And we're also doing a kind of a parallel thing with the aides that work with the kids that have special challenges. And one, I was just with them on a Zoom kind of teaching call for two hours yesterday. And one of the biggest challenges that they have, and they're very committed to the kids and very loving and open-minded, you know, they want to hear what I have to say and so on and so forth, is to really shift them from trying to fix the kids and make the kids do what they're supposed to, to actually connecting. So how do you do that? Because saying the word is, you know, it's just a word. So I'm going to say a few things, if it's okay with you guys, that are a bit theoretical, and then I can go into the concrete. Does that work? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, sure. I know that people who listen to your podcast already know that it's a, you know, about that the brain is plays an incredibly important role in whatever is happening to the child and what they're going to learn or not learn to do and be and how they'll experience their life. And also the whole idea of brain plasticity, or in other words, the changeability, the potential for the brain to change for the it can change for the worse, but we work on changing it for the better in response to its experience. So the brain is very, very responsive to, to ongoing experiences that we have. So if we accept that fact, the question is, what are the conditions that support and even more than support wake up the brain, almost literally wake up the brain to resume creating connections and being able to figure things out Uh, in very, very short term. The job of the brain, like every part of us, of our body has a job. The job of the brain is to put order in the disorder and to make sense out of the nonsense. Or in other words, to form patterns and for us to be able to, to understand and make sense all the different stimulus that comes to us, you know, in, in, and through us and that our body generates. And the ability to do that is exceptionally important. And what I discovered working with children with special needs, any kind of special need, it can be a healthy child that was traumatized later, it can be anything, is empowering the brain or enhancing the brain's ability to do its job better. And that's the potential. That's how I see the potential. Because all brains can work on better or worse. And many, many people confuse how the child presents itself, him or herself at this moment. That means if a child is unable to speak or doesn't understand math or is crying a lot or, you know, is ADD or whatever it is that it presents, people tend to assume that the current way that the child is operating is the level of potential and intelligence that they have embedded in them. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The way the child is operating right now is the best that they could accomplish given their, you know, what was available for them. They optimized themselves with what was available. So brain damage or genetic disorder or things like that interfere with the spontaneous ability of the brain to do its job more fully. And by the way, perfectly healthy children that we don't think have special challenges can also be given conditions where they will function a whole lot better. So what I 
first of all, I worked and did, you know, worked with kids for maybe 10 years into doing it or maybe a little longer. I don't recall because I wasn't planning to do what I was doing. So looking back, it's a little vague. But I started asking the question, what is it about what I do that works? Because they were just miracle and miracle, like this girl, Elizabeth, you know, she she was in a very bad shape. And then they did the MRI and she's missing a good portion of her cerebellum. And, and the prognosis was accurate given what the doctors knew can be done. And it took a long time. She started walking independently. She was eight or nine years old. Most kids can't do that. If they don't walk by a certain age, they don't get to walk unless you put all kinds of, I mean, independently, fully wearing high heels, you know, she has two master's degrees. She was considered completely, sorry for using the word, but, you know, cognitively, whatever. I don't know how to say it because people are so impaired. Impaired. Yeah. Thank you for your help. And she's a full blown woman, married. I mean, she's, she has a life. Did she have a really big challenge? Yes. Did it take a long process? But each improvement was a miracle, a miracle, a miracle. I'm sure you know that with your own kids. So I asked, what about what I do makes the difference? Because I didn't think I was endowed with a unique talent, one in, in the whole universe, right? I just had the good fortune to come across it and have it, the intuition or whatever they, to figure some things out. So, and that's what, where I come to the connection to your question. I've not forgotten your question. And I came up with what I call the nine essentials. So I say we have to shift from fixing to connecting, but how do we do it? And each of the essentials is a condition that dramatically enhances the brain's ability to do its job. That means to figure things out, to understand, to form high-quality motor uh, configurations, etc., etc. So I'll give you a few examples, and that's kind of like what I'd like to give your listeners. And I, you can slow me down with questions at any time, by the way, guys, because I can just talk straight through. So the first essential that I felt was like the base, the emperor of all essentials, is movement. Without movement, nothing happens. However, movement alone is not enough. In order for movement to drive real dramatic, you know, growth in the brain and formation or structuring of the brain is requires attention. And the attention is to the feeling of self. That means that what we feel as we move. If I'll contrast it, and of course, uh, Viola Feynman did that. They did that. You know, it was a big part. Uh, she touched and the way she did things and so on. But very often when a child, let's say CP or something, and they can do some, can move certain ways, very well-meaning therapists try to make them do it. You know, they, they put them in the position, they will stretch, they will ask them to do it. And if they kind of sort of do it, ask them to do it more, faster, or many, many repetitions. And for me, it's just like exactly the opposite. Because the way I understand how the brain works, and by the way, what I'm saying is today fully supported by brain research. Anyways, so when we move, whatever movement we do, and we intentionally focus on what we feel, what it, does it feel like, right? And that's what healthy infants do, by the way, all the time. So the rate of growth of new connections in the brain is estimated at 1.8 million new connections per second. And, and that's why 20, 25 minutes of really 
you know, attentive child that I work with is the maximum that they will absorb. And then we can do another one of those later in the day, but n- not more. I mean, it's, that's it. And, and no practice and no nothing because the brain gets it. So movement with attention. And we just had last week a father with a nine-year-old child on the spectrum, very quite severe, you know, yells, bites, pinches, very agitated and so on. And the reason he came is he found the, the, the book I wrote, Kids Beyond Limits, and started using the essentials and already see child can do things like within no time. And the father is doing it. It's not like a trained practitioner. When you interact, let's say if you have a child and you change their diaper, let's say, right? Or you have a, or you move a child or you help them, I don't know, reach something or whatever. And you do it in a way, and there comes in a second essential. You slow it down enough so that you can feel what's going on. And you can do it so the child starts noticing their arm moving and what it feels because they will. They start, you see the eyes kind of, it's almost like a mini gentle hypnosis, you know, they, and they start paying attention to what they feel. It calls upon their attention. You don't have to tell them because we are built to notice if we didn't feel enough when we move, we didn't sense the movement, we couldn't move. So we couldn't have any control or say in the movement altogether. So, and the, you connect with a person. You have to be connected to feel what the, yourself and them in order to move them in a way that they will feel themselves. So imagine changing a diaper. Just, you know, a little baby, three months old, you change the diaper. You can change it. You can use your voice. You can say, oh, now I'm going to pick your tush up. You touch the tush. You say, oh, it's coming up, you know, and you pick it up slowly. I have not had a child that didn't respond to that yet, and I've worked by now with thousands of children. Now, sometimes they're agitated, and it takes a while to get them to even, you know, the internal intensities and noise in themselves, but it, it works. So that's one. As you kind of work through these, which I think are wonderful to share with our families, I'm thinking about like, you know, where you started and how this came about and working with families. It's, I mean, it just sounds so intuitive. And then, you know, to your earlier point, there's so much behind now brain plasticity. And in many ways, you were ahead of your time, but now it's out there and known from a, a science perspective. What's preventing this kind of I mean, at these two essentials, what's preventing that from being more well-known or more propagated, just call it in the physical therapist world, is one, one basic place? Yeah. Well, first of all, it is one essential. I call it movement with attention. So you really shift from exercising the children to movement. I'm just going to do for, for the very first time a course for my already graduated the practitioners that are also trained to work with children called movement, thinking, and cognition. Is it movement with intention or attention? Movement with attention. Intention is a a separate thing. So it's movement with attention. Attention to the feeling of self. Let me tell you, just in terms of this essential, this very first essential, culturally, we do not give... First of all, we don't. many people don't have that distinction altogether, but even if they do... They're, culturally, we don't give it value. We give a lot of value to 
outcomes to execution to fastest, the strongest, the look what I did, you know, which is also very important. However, how do you get to be there? So if people don't have extreme or obvious challenges, then they somehow get good at one or two or three things and survive and are okay, sort of. But when somebody has challenges, it's not that they don't have a good brain. It's that they, that they need more enlightened and wise and capable people around them so that their brain can find its footing despite the, cha- the, you know, the derailments that they have. And to go to your question, Jason, look it, I don't know for sure, but I can tell why is it not more uh, propagated. It's because of, of uh, by the way, meditation and mindfulness is helping shift that. It actually helps shift that. I'm talking now in terms of general consciousness, right? It's like what we value, what we even think of or have as a thing in our experience, right? As a distinction. But I will talk about it two or three quickly. The first one, I took my time, but the essentials and and then I can tell you where I see the, the difficulty in propagating it more generally, because the outcomes are exceptional compared to what we get, what is known generally. I think that over time, other people will figure out things that will make the outcomes even better. But anyway, so if it's okay with you guys, the second essential is slow, slowing down, literally slowing down in terms of the movement slowing down. So like when I talked to the teachers and the aides yesterday, you know, they have a kid that uh, uh, gets up and uh, and pinches, you know, in the classroom. And they described to me what they try to do with him and it fails. It has failed all along, but they don't know what to do. So they just do what they know, which fails. So they showed me some clips of video of the kid and I saw the child and immediately I saw he was doing something and I said, I would just bend down and I said, you were really loud now. That's really interesting. You were really loud. He understands the language. He doesn't speak much. He understands. And and then you can say to him, do you want to be loud again? You know, that's connecting. Don't fix him and try to shut him up. He doesn't know. he, He Actually, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's agitated. He does it, but it's kind of like comes out of him. So to go to the connecting, another element is I said to them, stop trying to get a specific outcome to get him to stop yelling or to get him to do his homework or to get him to do this or that. I said, be curious, be interested in the child, join their experience, wonder what are they feeling? What are they thinking? What are they trying to accomplish? And dance with that and get the child to realize what they're doing. And, you know, you know, I've given them tips, so-called tips like that before. And the moment they do it, the child transforms. Just another example, a child, I, I know him because I was up there in the school, Daniel, and he gets really agitated and has a quote-unquote meltdown. He's about eight, I think. And so one of the aides got the idea from me. And the next time he was about to get a meltdown, she saw it coming and she said, Daniel, do you want to have a meltdown now? And if you want to have it, do you want it in the classroom or outside of the classroom? And she said, the kid looked at her like he was stunned. And he said, I don't want to have a meltdown. She said to him, oh, okay. Do you want to, but do you want to stay in class or go out of class? And I can't tell you how it proceeded, but he didn't have a meltdown. So there is something about 
unless the child is going to run into the street and get, you know, run over by a truck, then you don't ask them if they want to or not. And then you pull them right back. I mean, so you have to be reasonable. But within, and if a child is about to attack another child, I'll just step right in the middle and pick them up and move them up to the side. I mean, I'm, I take authority, a lot of authority. And, but within the context of the child, get interested in the child. One way to get a child to child's brain to start sorting what's going on is by slowing down. Neurologically fast, we can only do what we already know. It's already uh, the connections, the synapses are done. The myelination of the, the axons is, is established and fast, everything fast goes to something that's already well grained in ingrained. And if we want something new, we have to slow down. And that is really counterintuitive, but it causes on us to use our brain in a much higher quality than we normally do. We move out of automatic. The other one is reducing force, intensity. We don't force. We go gentler so that the brain can notice, perceive differences, notice what's going on easier. So we reduce the intensity, we slow down, we call upon the attention, we look for ways to, either if we do it for ourselves, by the way, if you want your child to pay attention to what they feel, you have to be sensing what you feel at the same time. We become one brain, we become one operational system when we interact with another person. So it's two, but they two synchronize. And it's very, very powerful. And the last one that I'll say in order to answer the question, your question, Jason, is flexible goals. You know, having goals is very good. It helps organize and give direction to what we do. So I'm all for having goals. But the relationship to the goal is a very uh, fluid. You know, we have a goal. If we already knew how to do it, we would do it. That's another thing I say, if he could, he would. If she could, she would. So stop asking people to do what they can't do. It's insanity. And then people say, but if I wouldn't ask them, how would they ever learn? Well, how does a a baby ever learn to roll over, to get up on the knees, to crawl, and to say the first word? You don't teach them to say mama. So what is the process that gets them to say mama or no or I want ice cream. I mean, what is the process? That's the process we need to simulate. And that process has no goals. This process has constraints that direct it towards certain goals, but it has no goals. You know, a baby's not lying there and say, oh my goodness, when am I going to walk? Right. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the things I was thinking about when you kind of talk through some of the big impacts you've had with children I wonder, you know, thinking about fixing versus connecting and then thinking about these key principles, like you have parents potentially that come to you and expect a miracle and they have these fixed goals of what that miracle is. How do you handle that? How do you kind of guide them towards this notion of flexible goals and kind of shifting their mind frame? Yeah, I'll just put in a basket, you know, of goodies here. One is I just uh, love those parents and so see how come they are where they come. It's devastating. It's traumatizing. There needs to be a whole new arena. And I think your podcast is definitely part of that to acknowledge that discovering that you have a child with special needs is a very traumatizing experience to the parents and to the grand, I mean, to everybody, but to, especially to the parents. And trauma is, has its own 
you know, thing. It's a very anxiety producing and it gets us to want to reduce the anxiety and we look to reduce the anxiety by fixing the problem, right? By making the traumatizing agent go away. But with a child with special needs, it doesn't go away. I mean, if the child gets better, of course, it, it dissipates, but it doesn't just go away. It's not like, oh my God, I had a car accident, but now you're sitting at home and you're safe. So there's an element of re-traumatizing, and then the brain goes into very narrow, kind of intense need for certain outcomes to happen in order to relieve the pain and the horror of it. And that doesn't mean they don't love their child. It just means that they're suffering and they're human and they need a lot of support. So it took me quite a few years to figure out. When I started working with kids, I was in my 20s, and I kind of protected the kids against their parents. And I told the parents to stop stretching them and stop doing this and stop doing that. I wasn't very sophisticated in the beginning. So parents used to bring their kids because they got outcomes, but they were terrified of me. So it wasn't a very good situation in that way. I was passionate about it. You know, I was intuitive and passionate and I just knew you you have to stop torturing the child, but we need to do something, right? So that's the number one. It's just to acknowledge that and then talk to them right away about and have them read the book and tell them that they will revisit wanting to fix the child over and over again. They will learn to become aware of it more and more and back off. And big part of them being able to do it is as the child gets better. Some parents would like to see the child walking right away or, you know, this kind of stuff, like you said. And I just, I learned to talk about it because I didn't realize how much parents did that when they saw the videos, especially the edited videos where I take three months in 10 minutes. So they expect in 10 minutes to get the same outcome. Right. You know, so, so we're getting more sophisticated on our end that way. And a big, big part is pointing, I didn't know to do it in the beginning, I just did it myself, is to speak out, to point out the changes that are happening. Because if the changes, the so-called quote-unquote small changes did not were not happening, then the miracles would not be happening. And for me, there isn't a small change or a big change in the brain. There is only yes change or no change and a desirable change or an undesirable change because the way the brain works it either changes its organization and then it gives certain outcomes so uh, we talk to them about that because parents who are in that state where they want the child fixed de facto are not connected to the child that means that they are disconnected from themselves you can't be disconnected from your child and not be on some level disconnected from yourself the way i started seeing it I saw that the, because I always have the parents sit in the, almost always have the parents sit in the room because I know that the parent and the child are one system. So I want them to change together, to experience the change simultaneously. So I have them sit and watch. And one of the things that some parents I could see was happening, I had no judgment of the child. I never experienced anything wrong with the child. I saw the child and I saw how devastated or not devastated they were, but I did not think anything was wrong. I just didn't have that experience. They just were a full human being the way they were. And it's a form of love, right? I mean, then I could just connect with them and be really after discovering what we can do, right? And the parents, unless they are very 
already like, you know, like that, they get inspired and they get permission to start loving their child. I actually, we give the parents permission to enjoy the child. And I, the two of you, I'm sure have done, have done that already, but to just enjoy and love long before the child is quote unquote perfect. And even if they never get perfect, and I don't know who is perfect, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal to just openly and unabashedly love someone that from the point of view of everybody else is really not okay and also wanting to help them get okay. And then what I also do, I have a five-day parent-child workshop that we half of it is working just with the parents. It was 25 families. And half of it is the parents with the children. And when I have just the adults, I take them through a movement lesson. So they go through changes and experiential stuff themselves and their brains start changing and also teach them the essentials. And then with the kids, essential by essential, I have them in the here and now find ways to implement and apply the essentials. It's wonderful. And then in that workshop is the other thing I also do with Parents, parents that have a lot of anxiety and really jump in and try to help the child too much, you know, or whatever, when it's hard for the parents to get a certain degree of ease and and connecting with the child that way. I have here in, you know, Marin County, California, I have a woman by the name of Randy Roberts. That's not her profession. She's a very high-end transformational coach for very large corporations like, you know, Apple and so on. But she's passionate about my work and she's passionate about parents. She lets us do, you know, the children's side and she's passionate about the parents and she's spectacular. So when the parents have a hard time, I, you know, I send them to her. She's miraculous how she helps the parents. But you should bring her to your podcast, by the way. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I, oh, she will do it. <laughs> She's something. So she parallel trains the parents how to be in the room and how to relate to the child and how to find their footing. So that's with the parents, but it's a job. And every family, it's from scratch. It's just like every child has to grow from scratch. Every parent has to grow from scratch. I feel like... um hearing so much. I'm so grateful for everything you're saying. You know, I don't have a child anymore. I have a young adult, but I learned much of this um, in a different modality, I guess, through Dr. Fryman and osteopathy and just my own mindfulness meditation practice and all. But I'm what keeps popping up in between me kind of swallowing kind of emotion and tears is the whole notion of healing rather than curing, which you know, my daughter has refractory epilepsy and and some cerebral palsy. But I think that's what I'm hearing from you. It's a very, I mean, you're articulating it so beautiful. But you know, that kind of sense of urgency that you have when your child is newly diagnosed, and for many years afterward, from the position of being decades along the path, when I meet new parents or even talk to parents on this podcast who have very young children, that kind of sense of the frantic urgency, it goes deep in me. And I remember it almost in a PTSD way, but and there's no way to sort of impose that on parents. But I always 
try to, I don't know, say that it will be all right. Everything will be all right. Your child will teach you that. I mean, you'll come to that, but I love that you have these, the slow down. I think there's so much that could be said even about that because we tend toward the opposite. And I don't know, I'm so floored. I wish we could talk forever to you. We might have to have a part two. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, f- funny you bring up the slow down point. And I was thinking about, so Anad, I have three boys. And I mentioned my oldest son, Noah, in the introduction, but my four-year-old, who's typically developing as far as we know, you know, they teach you one of these these same points of like, you know, slow down and because he's in the big emotions phase. Um, so slow down and join, using your words, join the experience it's a powerful thing, no matter the person, right? Um, and, you know, even just getting down at his level and connecting with him and that uh, that resonates both for, well, for all of my kids. And uh, I think uh, just to your point, Elizabeth, really powerful, like the children. I mean, there's, a, there's an element of the, the children will teach you, but also trying to find these tools and approaches to help you connect and be more of a unit with the child rather than separated is powerful. Thank you, first of all, both of you. I can feel, I can resonate with you. I can I pick it up. So thank you so much. And, you know, you, being a parent already is something, you know, because it happens in nature and it's been happening for millennia and so on, it's treated like, oh, you know, it's just like uh, chewing and swallowing and digesting food, right? But it's a huge deal. And there is no proper really actually proper attitude or preparation for somebody becoming a parent. And it's not about walking on eggs or anything like that. It's just like knowing what you're getting yourself into. It's like when my daughter got her driver's license, I set her up and I said, we have to have a talk, <laughs> you know, and of course she was interested in having a talk, you know, she just wanted to get away from me. And I said to her, you know, she was so excited. I said to her, look at hun, I'm giving you a killing machine to kill yourself and kill others, even if you don't intend to. So we're going to act like you're a lot older than you are, or you don't get the car. And I said to her, so that's how it's going to go. You're going to, before you get into the car and drive, you're going to call me, it was before, before texting, or at least I wasn't texting, and you're going to get, get into, you're going to text me and tell me where you're going. And when you get there, you, you know, you're going to text me, tell me, you know, <laughs> and so on. And I said, I know it's a huge bother to you, And I'm sorry about that. I said, however, I love you and I'm not going to stop doing that. So this is what I need from you. The reason I'm telling you that story is that what I see, and I think it's important to be clear about that. Part of what what I sent parents to Randy for is that the parents are extremely loving and it's wonderful, very loving of their child, but they seem to have lost the sense of leadership in the relationship. You know, the child starts crying. Well, okay, so let me just do, do a preamble here. When a baby is a month old, two months old, three months old, they, they cry. You jump. You check their, their diaper. You check whether they're hungry. You check, check whether they need to burp. You know, I mean, they're like 100% dependent on you. In a healthy process where there aren't interruptions, you know, at a certain point, the child they, they rolls over and can start looking at the world and grabbing things, you know, and then crawling and this and that, and they get more and more agency. You still have to watch that they're not going to kill themselves, put the house on fire. Or, you know, they still need a lot of leadership, but you can let them do more and more. And even in that, many parents have trouble kind of letting children fail, letting children 
discover that doing something a certain way is not going to work. It's actually essential that that happens. But with the kids that have issues, the parents, the normal progression of separation in that sense, functional separation from the parents, is disturbed. They still have to feed the child long before other kids can already feed themselves or things like that. And I find that I need to get parents to be able to say no to a child or even not just exactly no, like I said, let me tell you how it's going to go versus what would you like? So if, if it's okay, I said to a kid, when I work with them, I said, do you want a toy? They say, yes, I give them a toy. They don't say anything. I don't do anything. They say, no. I say, okay, I won't do it. But I also say, let me tell you how it's going to go. You're going to be on the table. Your sister is going to sit and play, you know, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean it always goes the way I say, but when it doesn't go the way I say, I work with it. So it's not, I don't just sort of create, it's not equal. A parent and a child are not equal. It can be benevolent and loving and connected, but the adult has many more tools than the child. In connecting with a child, I don't become the child. I still know that I'm the boss, you know, (laughs) I'm in charge. And that is very powerful because the nervous system needs that. And the nervous system of the child needs that, including the child with special needs, or maybe even more so, I don't know. Yeah, I think about this very point of um, we're starting to use an AAC device for my son Noah and this idea of giving him agency, like we've waited for this tool to enable that. But to your point, as I think back over the the course of the last 12 years, there were other other ways we could have done that. And, you know, but kind of guiding and and looking for those opportunities, it's a... a, uh, yeah, it's a helpful reminder to think about that. We had a guest um, it was over a year ago, Elizabeth, that talked about the ladder analogy she had, which was so powerful that you you think of, um, who was that, Elizabeth? That's um, Lisa Lilienthal, right. yeah. and it's from a lunch conversation right. that we had once where you're, as a mother, um, you're always behind thinking you're on a ladder behind your child, no matter their ability or disability, that you're somehow there to catch them when they fall or you're there to kind of push them along up. But actually, the way to look at parenting or being a mother is no matter the ability of the child is to put your own ladder next to them and you're you're on that ladder with them alongside them but not there always to catch them nor to push them ahead that you're on your own sort of journey it doesn't necessarily mean upward but the metaphor is so beautiful and sustaining and even our children with really severe Uh, life-limiting disabilities have their own journey. And I think that is intuitive as well, that we learn intuitively or allow ourselves to learn. But yeah, you know, it's another paradigm. It's another place. It's a much more complex, not complicated, but much more evolved place of being where I don't ask children to do what they can't do because that will lead to failure in general, right? So they will, people learn to fail in certain ways, right? You tell, you ask somebody who had a stroke to use their arm after two attempts where the arm gets very spastic, their brain is already patterned. They expect the arm to get spastic. They learned it. So it's a longer conversation, but I'll try to say it in a I see where the child can do things, and I try to expand around that. I call it differentiating around the edges. But I also leave room and space time-wise sometimes. Just watch for another 10 seconds and see what's going on. Don't jump in right away, right? 
because the way the brain progresses is not in a linear, predictable direction. It pops. And the kids sometimes, like I work with a kid in autism and they start talking all of a sudden. I didn't know they were going to talk, but somehow what we were doing in organizing the brain freed that up right? Or allowed for that to occur. And to contrast it, there are certain approaches of, of trying to help children learn and, you know, develop where the, there are hours of repetition of the same stuff over and over and over again. And for me, it's, you know, driving the brain to one of its lowest level. You get outcomes, the brain responds to it, but they're very low level, limited outcomes. Whereas when you think in terms of the essentials, the way I see it, you try to facilitate, you create conditions that are favorable for learning and growth that happens with everybody who learns and grows. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I uh, as Elizabeth was saying earlier, I think we're going to have to do a part two. I want to be sensitive to your time. I'd love to kind of dig in uh, on this this one question that's uh, bothering me, and then we'll get to the lightning round. The, the question that's bothering me is that it makes so much sense that it's one of those classic things in this world of why the hell isn't this everywhere? Why isn't it you know, more... I, I let, let me give you the really short version. Because to do it, you have yourself to evolve. The people that I train to become practitioners spend a hundred days worth of training with me and my other co- teachers. I don't teach it myself. I have other trainers, uh, not only me, but it's a huge personal growth process on yourself. Now you, you can start it right away and you can start changing right away. You don't have to you know, wait five years before you use it. You can start using it from listening to the podcast, whatever somebody grasps. But when they train uh, doctors, when they, and, which are amazing, I mean, doctors are fantastic and I wouldn't want to live in a world without them and physical therapists and so on. They don't take them through a process of personal evolution so that their brain operates on a level where they could connect better to the children, etc. The school I brought, you know, in Canada that we're bringing in, they're wonderful people and they asked us to come. They're interested in it, but they still thought that we will give them rules of do this when that, do this when that. And I told them, I said, I want the, they wanted us to work just with the AIDS and the children with special needs. I said, no, that's not going to succeed. It's a cultural change. It's an evolution of the whole system. So they either had to say yes or I wasn't going to do it. So they said yes. So and just so he, let's say we're now what in, in, in February. So in January, we, so half a year, we started uh, in August. It's not quite half a year. The superintendent who brought us says to me, so Anat, really, what has to happen is the teachers and the aides have themselves to evolve so they could do it. I said, welcome home. That's the main reason, and it has no value. If you look at the political system, if you what's going on, if you look at the way uh, wealth and, and the values that they are, nobody says we will elect a, a president that has spent at least 10 years working on themselves to evolve themselves as a human being. I mean, nobody even considers it. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, and you touched on this earlier, but so it's it's a cultural revolution that has to happen, it sounds like. And you think about mindfulness and as a potential model for this, because that seems to be shifting from alternative medicine to this is the right thing. It's happening. It's not a revolution. Revolution implies like a, a violent or very aggressive, intense thing that changed. It's actually a, it's a, it's a process that 
leads to a very specific direction. And if you look at it from a neurological point of view, you literally continue differentiating and integrating and creating a more and more complex system that means it has more and more freedom, less and less compulsion and more and more creativity and awareness and ability to know. You know, it's it's actually a real evolution and it has to happen brain by brain. But if you have enough brains that are doing it, the next generation that are born will get there faster because they will be raised within the juice of that, right? So your environment of that. But it's all, but you know, babies do start rolling over by around four to six months and then they do the, I mean, there is a process that has to occur. I want to say two things for, to the end, or three things. When my teacher told me once, if we have another opportunity, I might tell you that's Feldenkrais. He said that humanity is in its infancy. If we want to make an equivalent to a human being, humanity is somewhere between two to three years old. And he was optimistic, actually. But he said it to me when I, when I started working with people. I was very young. I was in my mid-20s. He said, you have to understand that you are very young and you'll work with people a lot older than you, but they are in their development a lot younger than you. And, you know, he gave me a gift because it's sort of, you know, I fumbled along moving forward, you know, bumping against the walls. And so that was number one. Number two, I'm trying to remember the name. It's in my film, A Life Unbound. Oh, he was a very famous evolutionary biologist that died young, wrote a million, not a million, but many books. In one of his books, he talks about the slowing down developmental process in humans, which is really important. And one of the mistakes, by the way, with therapy, they're trying to accelerate it. So there is a, we are supposed to do things slower. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But this, he, I'm quoting him, We are born to die unfinished. That means we have unlimited, not unlimited that we could fly like a bird, but we have endless resource for continued development, endless potential resource. And the children with special needs have brains that are as good and as built to learn as uh, other brains. We just need to support them in doing that which they are born to do. And I think parents need to know that. Yeah, essential ways actually to live, uh, or I would say the only way to live. Yeah, and Elizabeth, I want to take that. I was going to have a little note here and I didn't get to it. When you said uh, the alternative approaches are healing versus curing, which is fixing, that is really it. I mean, curing sometimes is important. There are certain things we want to cure. But it's bringing the the system to where it was before it got sick, right? Which very often will get it back to needing to be cured. But sometimes, you know, a bone is broken, it still has to heal, but you want to set it or, you know, there's some things we need to do. Healing is moving into the potential, moving into possibilities. That's healing, into something different and new. And the process there can be many different ways. So thank you guys. I mean, you're wonderful. You're both wonderful. Thanks again to Anat for sitting down with us. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes by visiting us at wholiveslikethispodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back here in two weeks. Be sure to tune in then.